At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 1976, as America was celebrating its bicentennial, there was little to celebrate in West Mills, a small, still segregated town in North Carolina. That's the fictional setting for decent people. The new novel by the award-winning young author Deshaun Charles Winslow is written as a murder mystery. And later this hour, Winslow explains how he uses the form to explore the intersection of class, race, and homophobia within the black community. Plus, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes takes us to seven stages for the story of Pinocchio, reimagined for an adult audience as an immersive theater experience, with Pinocchio leaving home to discover a curious and chaotic world. First, the music of Johnny Mercer all but defines the American songbook of standards. And you may well know a song by Mercer, even if you didn't know he wrote it. The prolific lyricist, composer, and singer from Savannah, Georgia, wrote the words to over 1,500 songs, and he co-founded Capitol Records. For several years now, the Rialto Center for the Arts at Georgia State has hosted a tribute night to Johnny Mercer with the help of local jazz artist and frequent City Lights guest, Joe Granston. The tribute returns on Saturday with new songs recently discovered in Johnny Mercer's archive. Joe Granston joins me now via Zoom with Louis Harifo, the GSU grad student who pieced together and arranged for musicians these never-before-heard lyrics. Joe, Lewis, let's talk about the Johnny Mercer tribute. It's been a tradition at the Rialto, recurring 
roughly every two years when a pandemic doesn't interfere. <laughs> Why does Johnny Mercer's work deserve to be revisited often? Oh, boy. There's lots of reasons. I mean, the, the top reason is he's, he's one of the greatest lyricists ever. His songs tell the most beautiful and fantastic stories. His English language, I mean, the, the words that he would come up with. I mean, half of the words I'm singing, I have to look up myself to see what they mean. But when I do, I, I get it, man. So, so that's, that's like the first reason. You know, the, the reason we, we do it over at Georgia State is because all of his um, archives, everything is there, the Johnny Merson Collection, is at the Georgia State University Library. It was gifted to them by, the, I guess, the Johnny Mercer Foundation and the family. So it's all there, and you could tour it. You could go see it, all his writings, all his awards, his recordings. And it's it's quite amazing to go check it out. I've seen it a handful of times. So it's appropriate to do it there, and it's it's always a thrill for me to kind of be be the, you know, the guy that kind of produces the show and co-produces it and helps pick the songs and all. Wow. We're going to hear about some very special songs new to the Rialto tribute repertoire in a moment. But first, Joe, would you refresh us on some of the immortal American songbook classics Johnny Mercer wrote and which among them you might perform at the concert? Yes, I will. And I'll tell you... Whatever I'm going to tell you now are definitely songs that are going to be on the program because we've been rehearsing and the program is figured out. And as you mentioned, he wrote over 1,500 songs and um, we're only going to do 1,200 on that concert. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But we, we've picked what we, we feel are some of the ones that are they're so famous and, and people will recognize. When we played our charade we were like children posing, playing at games, acting out names, guessing the parts we played. Oh, what a hit we made. We came on next to closing. Best on the bill, lovers until love left the masquerade. Played, seemed to pull the strings. I turned and you were gone. But we've also picked some that are, may not, you know, be household names, but some of the ones that you're going to hear, like Satin Doll, a great, great old song that, that everybody loves, The Days of Wine and Roses, which is fantastic. Of course, Moon River, we'll do that one. Um, I'm going to sing a song called When October Goes. And if you've never heard that song, it's a gorgeous song. The lyrics were given to Barry Manilow by Johnny Mercer's widow, I believe, many, many, many years ago in the 1980s. And Barry Manilow put music to it to Johnny Mercer's lyrics, and it's called When October Goes. It's just gorgeous. It reminds me of growing up in Buffalo, New York, and when, every time I sing it, I think of my childhood, and, and I usually tear up, but I love that song. And when October goes The snow begins to fly Above the smoky roofs I watch the plane go by the children running home beneath a twilight sky oh for the fun of them when I was one of them oh, what is it about the song 
that evokes Buffalo? Well, you know, growing up in Buffalo in October, in November, December, you know, you, you have those winters, you have those cold, cold days, those gray skies, and it can be kind of lonely sometimes. And and the lyrics kind of reflect that. When October goes, the snow begins to fly above the smoky roofs. I watch the planes go by. He talks about his childhood in it. it it's just really, it's really kind of haunting. I should be over it now, I know. It doesn't matter much how old I grow. I hate to see October go. It's really haunting, but be in a beautiful way, in, in, in a very, very beautiful, warm way. Oh, yeah, because October, I guess fall has already peaked with color in Buffalo, and it means winter is on the way. This show presents brand new material, three never-before-heard Johnny Mercer songs, Lewis there was historical detective work that went into the discovery and preparation of this material. Will you please tell us the story of how you brought these songs to light? Yeah, sure, sure. So I was awarded the Mercer Foundation's scholarship to complete my graduate degree. And in exchange for that scholarship, what I had to do was the pleasure of combing through unpublished writings of Johnny Mercer from his estate. His estate is housed at Georgia State on the top floor of the library. And I had to comb through and find lyrics to put together melody and chord progressions to, to complete songs because what he just wrote the lyrics and sometimes melodies. But in this case, it was just lyrics. And then I had to arrange these songs for big band in order for Joe and others to sing on the concert. Mm. We know it was common in Mercer's day for one songwriter to contribute lyrics and another melody and arrangement. That's still a model for some musicians today. Was what you discovered in the archive just written lyrics, or were there any indications from Johnny Mercer as to how the tunes ought to be realized? Okay, on, on some occasions, he had the melody note of what he intended written above each word. So I played with some of those, but the ones I ended up using to complete songs were just lyrics. But yeah, there were quite a few that had melody notes above the word. Well, I'm curious about the way you shape these notes into full arrangements. I mean, it's like collaborating with Mercer posthumously. How did you go about composing music to fit Mercer's nearly 100-year-old ideas? Well, I had to do a lot of listening. <laughs> I had to <laughs> listen to music, his music and music of the era, and also big band music to really get in the spirit of, to really get in the vibe of that in order to try to come up with melodies that were both fitting the lyrics and reminiscent of the time period. What can you tell us about these new tunes, what they mean to you, and do you have a favorite among them? 
Yeah, I have a favorite. So one of the tunes I wrote was called So Full of Love. I think that was more dear to my heart because of the journey. Like when I was writing it, well, first of all, the, the lyrics were kind of not, they didn't come packaged with a title and the whole song written out in one place. So what I had to do was kind of piece together lyrics from scraps of paper where I guess an idea would hit him and he would write that idea down and kind of create the song from his pool of lyrics. And so that was the first journey, getting everything to make sense and and be a complete song. And then I did an arrangement of that song and I did it in 4-4 and when I heard it with the band, I didn't quite like it. And I had to go back and tweak it some and it ended up in 3-4. And that whole process kind of... <laughs> <laughs> kind of made it more dear to me. More lilting, more waltz-like. Yes, more waltz-like, yes. Uh-huh. How did the folks at the Mercer Foundation react to uncovering these lost lyrics by your mutual hero? Well, I'm the third recipient of this uh, award, so I think they were very pleased because um the estate was donated to Georgia State and the foundation formed around that. And they have a big archive up on that floor that's dedicated to him, where it has both his published stuff and it has boxes and boxes and boxes of memorabilia and as well as unpublished lyrics, just writings. Some of them would be on scraps of paper. Some of them would be typed out. Some of them look like they had coffee stains on them. So they were just his personal writings. And that was such an honor to be able to interact with that stuff. Joe, what is it like to perform these, I don't know if you call them reconstructed songs, newly constructed songs? Hmm. <laughs> it's pretty magical. It's pretty magical. It's It's a little bit... It, uh, boy, it's a little bit frightening. It's it's exciting to be the first one to get to perform them. This is the third concert that we've been doing this. Jason Collier wrote a bunch six years ago, I guess it was. And then four years ago, Marco Moritz found two or three that he wrote. And now we got the great Louis Haribo, who's, who's going so far beyond the call of duty to make these things perfect. So myself and Robin Lattimore get to stand up on, on stage and the crowd for the first time gets to hear these songs. It's it's kind of a big weight on your shoulder, but it's it's fun and it's exciting. I can tell you in concerts past where uh, Jason has written them and Marco, the the reactions to um, Moon River and and some of Johnny Mercer's biggest hits, it's always fantastic. But the reactions to these unpublished works is huge. People can't believe that they're getting to hear these things first. And who knows what will become of these songs if they be, become recorded in the future, if they become kind of American songbook standards from the from the 2000s, right? Uh, so it's it's really a thrill. Do you have any plans to record? Just tentative plans to do some type of Johnny Mercer project. And, and if that goes through, maybe we do it with the foundation, maybe we do it with Georgia State University. But if that goes through, we will definitely do some of these unpublished works, if and only if it's it's allowed by the Mercer Foundation and if these songs become published and legally allowed to record, you know, because that's a whole other side of the of the coin. But but they're, they're certainly worthy of it. They're fantastic. I'm looking at some of them now as we're talking. 
jazz musicians Joe Granston and Louis Haravo. The Johnny Mercer Tribute Show is at the Rialto Center for the Arts this Saturday. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about the new Seven Stages production of Pinocchio. The immersive theater experience is for adults and includes sensory elements like smell and taste. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The story of Pinocchio comes to Seven Stages Theatre tomorrow, reimagined for an adult audience. The immersive theatre experience is on stage through March 12th and begins with Pinocchio venturing away from home into a curious and chaotic world. Miriam Khalid of Sky Creature Productions and Michael Hafferty of the Object Group collaborated to explore a world full of magic and desire. And together, they address the timeless question, what makes a human human? Khalid and Haverty recently joined City Light senior producer Kim Drobes to discuss the production, and Haverty began by explaining why he wanted to work with Khalid. I know I've always been a fan of Mariam's work. Uh, she's one of my favorite directors in town, and so I sort of forced a friendship between us <laughs> many years ago. And um, we both discovered that we wanted to tell this story. Uh, I just wanted to because it's one of the the Ur puppet stories, you know, one of the very most famous puppet stories. Uh, and then Mariam had her own background, uh, memories of this story as a child. Yeah, uh, this was the first story that I remember reading and watching as a kid. In fact, today, wandering through our sets, a memory popped up for me where I was 
in the shoes of Pinocchio and calling for my brother the way Pinocchio did, you know, like father, father kind of thing. So it's been with me for a long time and it, it's revisited me time and time again. And then Michael brought it up and I mean, how can you say no? And so you call that a memory. What do you mean by a memory and being in Pinocchio's shoes? I just remember feeling very connected to the character as a child. Um, mm. Wandering through the sets today without giving away too much. One of the spaces we go into in our version is the whale's insides, the whale's belly. Cool. And I was exploring the space and it invoked us uh, like a sensory memory of me being home in England at the time and picking up my brother from school and I'm in the pram and my brother's running towards me and I'm calling out to him as if he's Geppetto and it just suddenly brought back all this like childlike wonder and all the same feelings that you used to get when you were a kid and you watched something for the first time, explored those things for the first time. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. So it's my understanding that this play is a continuation of a film that you released virtually in December of 2021. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. Yes. So tell us about the film and how it relates to the upcoming theater performance. Yeah, so we started this film project um, in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, and at that time, most of the theaters were closed. And so film was a place where we could continue to work safely, um, continue to pay creative people, creative team to come together. Um, and we thought it would work really well uh, in a film medium. So we started the production as a film. And then as the pandemic eased, number one, a lot of the public funding sort of shifted back to live events and away from virtual events. So we thought, well, wouldn't this be sort of an interesting experiment to create a, a real multidisciplinary show where you watch part one as a film, you receive a link when you buy your ticket to the live show. It's like a 30 minute short film of, of Pinocchio's birth. And then you come to the theater and you see the rest of the story live. So it was kind of an interesting way for us to rejoin live theater, uh, but also play with the two mediums at once. Can you give us a brief synopsis of where this play starts and the story that you're telling? Sure. Um, so part one is, like Michael said, the birth of Pinocchio and him sort of learning how to puppet in a human fantastical animal world. And then where we start with the show is he has finally decided that he's going to be a good little puppet and start school. And then what happens when he's out in the world by himself is where we start. Excellent. And can you tell us about your role as the Blue Fairy? Oh, goodness. Yes. Um, firstly, Michael wrangled me into <laughs> it. It's That's the best way to put it. The Blue Fairy has been an interesting exploration for us. Every version that we've read or seen or explored, you know, Blue Fairy is a very otherworldly character. I mean, there's the classic Disney version where she is almost this godmother-like figure. And then in the book itself, the original book, um, she's just this dead girl. It was a lot of fun to work with Mariam. I, I think she's a fantastic actress as well as a director and writer. 
So I was looking for any opportunity to get her into the show. Uh, and it just felt right for her to play this um, this sort of nature goddess uh, of both light and dark. Um, you know, Mariam just had a baby a little while ago, so she she's full up Aww. in her uh, in her mother aura, and so she plays the blue fairy uh, in the projections. It's also a way that the the film beginning of the show sort of bled into the live version is that we have multiple screens in the spaces and we project onto all of the screens, uh, the blue fairy. So the blue fairy appears in this other world, which is in projection world. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, Michael, could you tell us about some of the other central characters in the show? Yeah, Pinocchio comes across all sorts of folks who want to tell him what to do. That seems to be the <laughs> key of the, the story is people want Pinocchio to obey them and he just does not want to obey. That's the central theme, really, of the story is uh, who, who is Pinocchio going to obey? Is he going to obey no one? Uh, and and what, what does that mean? So it's not only Geppetto, his father, and the Blue Fairy, who's ostensibly his mother, but also this rascally group of a fox and cat who are uh, a bunch of vagabonds just trying to steal Pinocchio's money. And ultimately, uh, well, I won't say too much, but ultimately they they would like to do with Pinocchio what they will and make money off of him. There's also a visit to Pinocchio's school where we meet his teacher. So uh, the teacher also has some very specific ways that they believe young children should behave. And there's the cricket, of course. The cricket, who is voiced by Mariam's father, oh, is a stop-motion animated uh, creature that we also project. So the cricket is also bouncing around from screen to screen trying to tell Pinocchio what to do. And it's a lot of fun. Our actress, Rachel Wansker, who's playing Pinocchio, really sort of is Pinocchio in her own heart. Sweet. She was easy to cast because she just came across immediately as, as excited about everything, a little naive, a little out of control. So it's a lot of fun to watch this ball of energy, little puppet, uh, careen and bounce off of all these people who are trying to control her, control him in some way. So this is listed as an immersive experience. It's incorporating food and smell. Yeah, so there are elements of scent and taste and touch and all those senses in the story. There are multiple areas where you experience the scene, not just visually, but when Pinocchio eats or drinks something, we encourage our audience to do the same. Um, I don't know if I am giving away too much, but we have a moment between Blue Fairy and Pinocchio where she offers him something specific to drink. And that same drink is what the audience will get to experience. So they're not all the spaces have that, but all the spaces have a scent that is in the air. So you get to explore it with all your senses. Wow. Is this a seated performance for the audience or are they moving throughout a space for the most part yes uh, they're seating throughout most of the spaces i think the only time you're really walking around is when you're transitioning from scene to scene i see so you mentioned the general theme is everyone wants to tell pinocchio what to do mm -hmm. there's also a huge theme in the original about morality and respect and lying and not stealing are any of these moral compass themes addressed in this version? Yeah, absolutely. Basically, every character Pinocchio meets, they 
offer him all these choices, but are constantly, like Michael said, are telling him that the best choice to make is to obey him. So he goes through a lot of inner turmoil about, well, morally, what is right for me and who I am. Yeah, and it builds and builds and builds to the climax where Pinocchio has to make a really big decision. So it's, yeah, it's about what parts of humanity does he want to take on? What sort of role models does he want to accept? And what does accepting a role model mean in all of its complexity? But also, when do you take a stand for yourself and obey your inner compass only? I love the ideas that you're addressing here. And I can hear y'all holding back as to not reveal any spoilers. (laughs) And I want to respect that. So just to wrap up, Michael, I'd love to know why the world of puppetry theater is so important to you. And in what ways do you feel like puppetry can showcase a story that regular theater can't? Oh, that's a great question. I love puppetry so much. It's just, it's captured my heart since I was a little boy. I grew up here in Atlanta, going to the the Center for Puppetry Arts and just immersing myself in puppets every chance I could get. Um, There's something magical about them, of course, you know, an, an inanimate object brought to life. There's something very magical and mysterious about that. Puppets are also vessels. They're, they are inanimate objects. So you can pour a lot of your own feelings into them as an audience member. So for myself, watching puppet shows, I, I find myself able to unleash my imagination. And especially with the sort of work we're doing here, where we're blending humans and puppets and film, that, you know, I like to be surprised when I go to the theater. I want something interesting happening. I want to be shocked in one way or another. Um, And I think puppets just they do that naturally because they are magical creatures. So I think they unleash our kid at heart and allow us to think through things that are large themes we've been dealing with since we were kids. Co-producers Michael Haverty and Miriam Khalid, Pinocchio is at Seven Stages Theatre March 3rd through 12th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, author Deshaun Charles Winsler discusses his new mystery novel, Decent People. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. In 1976, as America was celebrating its bicentennial, there was little to celebrate in West Mills, a small town in North Carolina that's the setting for decent people, the new novel by the award-winning young author Deshaun Charles Winslow. Three people are found shot to death at their home in the still-segregated town, and the white authorities want to close the case with minimal investigation. One woman newly resettled in West Mills is determined to solve the crime And what she discovers reveals a complex story of 
race, class, and homophobia. Deshaun Charles Winslow joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you for having me, Lois. Oh, the pleasure is mine. Please introduce our listeners to Josephine Wright and her situation within this story. Sure. So Josephine was born in the, the small town of West Mills, North Carolina, but when she was about 12 years old, she was snatched away abruptly by her mother and they moved to New York. And she, Josephine, was never really given a thorough explanation as to why they moved. So she lived her entire adult life in New York City. She has been married a couple times. She's had some, you know, some failed relationships. And as she reached retirement age, she decides to purchase a home in West Mills where she meets again Olympus Limp Seymour. They were children together and and that sort of thing. And they rekindle a friendship and they become fiancés. They become engaged. And so she takes a trip back to New York to visit her sick brother. And when she returns to West Mills, she is told that the Harmons have been murdered. The Harmons are Lemp's half-siblings. And so she wants this relationship with Lemp to work really badly. And so she goes on a mission to exonerate him in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the community. She wants her relationship to work, which means he has to be free and he has to be innocent. So that's her part in this. And Limp is a good guy. Yeah. Still, he had some anger management problems yes. and just just enough to keep the reader and Joe herself wondering, although it seems unlikely, if in a moment of rage or passion, he could have committed that crime. Yes. How does having lived in New York City influence Joe's actions in decent people? Well, she has, she has witnessed a lot of police negligence. She has seen cases closed abruptly, especially cases where Black people were the victims of murder or whatever, you know, sorts of, of deaths and, and injuries and harm. And so she has taken it upon herself in the past to help solve those cases and help the families of those victims. So she brings that attitude and that determination to this small town where it's done very, very rarely. And so people are kind of like, why are you and why are you walking around here asking questions? You are not the police. <laughs> and so she's like, well, I don't have to be a police, a police person to um to want the right thing done and to want answers. While the murder of three people in West Mills is shocking, there isn't much sympathy for one of the characters in particular. Will you describe the Harmon family? Sure. So Marion, she is the oldest of the three, and she is the family's trophy child. She went to medical school, became a doctor, and 
she has the most money, the most education. So she kind of runs runs the show. And Marva, her younger sister, just by a few years, is sort of a free spirit in a way. She doesn't really go after her dreams, but she is more social. And then there's Lazarus, their youngest brother, younger brother. And he is, he sort of goes where the wind where the wind blows him. He's he's intelligent and and that sort of thing, but he just doesn't really have drive. And most of this is because from the time they were children, their parents always said, Marion is the one. Marion is the smart one. Marion is the one you all should listen to. And so they are a very interesting family. None of them have a set of siblings. None of them have been married before. And people find it strange that they live together at the ages of mid-50s to early 60s. But Marion in particular, she has no bedside manner. She's all about business. She shows very, very little emotion. And so she's not well-liked. She talks down to, to people, family members, and patients. She's not welcome. <laughs> she is respected in a way because of what she has achieved. But she, her personality makes her unwelcome among the people. Yeah. Yeah. She's formidable. And, and she uses her power to manipulate her siblings as well as her patients and their families. Yes. She's intimidating to nearly all of West Mills, white and black. Yes. Is that because of all she has achieved or was there was there something personal about her that you were also conveying here i think what i was trying to convey was that in a small town like west mills where the white people tend to have the majority of the power here marion comes a black physician and she challenges everything that people believe about themselves. And that's white people and the black people in the town. So she she shakes things up because they have, you know, they have always these the white people on the east side of town have always believed that they were superior in every way. And she really calls that into question. Her very existence calls and presence calls that into question. Very much so. A canal divides the town into the sections where white residents are segregated from the black residents of West Mills. How do you compare small town life, even within these segregated communities? Is there more that they share in the way they navigate life? than one would at first think. Yes, I think so. So I'll compare it to what my experience is in a big city. While New York City is, there's millions of people um, from different walks of life, different countries, different states, a neighborhood can be very insular once you've lived there in a while. You start to see the same people every day on the same train schedules that you visit the same bodegas and that sort of thing. And I think the difference though, 
in a small Southern town like West Mills is that if you learn something about a person that's unsavory, you could use it against them to harm their livelihood, to ruin their reputation in the community, that sort of thing. In a place like New York, you may learn something of unsavory, but you don't really have much power because you don't know where they go in Manhattan to work. You don't know what their social circles are like. But I do think small, very small town living, it is hard to have any anonymity and your life is on the front page of every of everyone's mind just about <laughs> the moment they see you wow something comes to mind yeah you divide the chapters among four main characters all richly drawn joe has the greatest number of chapters mm-hmm. she is the de facto detective in the story. That's Mm -hmm. understandable. Who is Eunice? So Eunice is a pillar of the community, sort of following the footsteps of her parents who owned a grocery store during a time where it was not common. And she is an adoptee. And her, her birth mother is a person who is viewed as a pariah. And so with Eunice having that information, her goal is to be the best mother uh, she can be. She doesn't want her child to ever be ashamed of her, and she wants to be regarded. She wants to be highly regarded in the community in all ways. And so that desire causes her to do some some things that are just not in the best interest of her family and definitely not in the best interest of her son but she is well-meaning. Yeah. In fact, the most painful part of this story involves Eunice's son, Leroy. He is subjected to a horrific experience, supposedly meant to help him. Yes. What can you tell us about conversion therapy as it would have applied to people living in 1976. Yeah, well, I can speak to the ways that people would have tried conversion therapy where I grew up. And basically the idea is that you don't involve anyone outside of your home. The idea is that if you're very, very religious, you pray to God to, to change that person. And sometimes there is there is violence, there is beating, there is different forms of, of punishment to make a boy walk differently, talk differently, laugh differently, so on and so forth. So to the best of my knowledge, no one from the community that I'm modeling West Mills on sent their child to any type of formal conversion therapy because again you just wouldn't you wouldn't dare tell anyone that you had a child that needed to be converted you wouldn't admit to it aloud how painful how sad joe's brother is openly gay herschel though she learned something about his past that is stunning for her It's difficult to fathom that this sort of attitude, so-called treatments, were this recent. 
do you think progress has been made? You know, I, I thought that a lot of progress has, had been made until about a year ago. I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw a video in which a father was speaking very, very harshly to his, his son and telling him he didn't want him to be a F word. And there were other children there watching. And I had to stop. I had to stop the video. So this was in, you know, 2020, early 2022, when I saw that video. And I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe it. So black, white, small town, big city doesn't make that much of a difference it in doesn't. terms of people who believe these things. Exactly. Savannah Russett is a sympathetic character. What is her role in the narrative of West Mills? I think Savannah's role is to show that, A, that a person could come from a racist household and not be racist. I mean, there are some people say that we are that we are we all have biases um, because they are taught to us and ingrained in us from a young age. But I think that Savannah is mostly for most of her narrative proves that that is not always the case. And even her motivations at the end of the novel to sort of do a, a wicked ish thing. I don't make it crystal clear if she does that out of racism or if it is just a naughty human trait, you know, in a moment of a moment of anger. I leave that to the readers to decide. She is a yeah. very sympathetic character. For a few of the male characters, main characters, I notice you use the term mama's boy recurringly. <laughs> Gay, straight, black, white, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Would you talk about your use of the mama's boy theme? Yes. <laughs> For a moment, it was a title that I got considered. Oh, um, really? Yes, yes. So, you know, I'll use my, myself as an example. I am a mother. I am a mama's boy. You know, I really am. And even though my mother and I have had periods where we didn't see eye to eye and didn't speak as frequently and that sort of thing, she can do no wrong. You know, she, her, I can only stay upset with her for a short period of time. And most of the men I know are the same way. <laughs> yeah, I think we defer, in the end, I think we defer to our mothers. And so I kind of wanted that to come out throughout the book, that even when a mom does something to hurt her son, most of the time he's going to forgive her. One would hope that unconditional love continues right. to flow, even with some mistakes in behavior. You keep the reader engaged, even on edge, with trying to guess the killer. Would you talk about how you use the mystery genre to address serious themes? I don't mean to diminish 
the mystery genre. In fact, I wondered if you had any reservation about how the book is classified or marketed. There's no reason for apology, but people do think in terms of genres yes. with literary form. Absolutely. Yes. So when I first started writing the book, I had no intentions of it being a mystery at all. And I decided to turn it into a murder mystery because I I really got I got bored with where it was going. I didn't feel that the book had enough of an engine. It took a lot of convincing for me to get to the desk to, to write because I just wasn't thrilled by where it was going. So when I decided to turn it into a mystery, things really picked up for me. <laughs> and the reader. And the reader, I hope. And so, but I did have reservations given what in West Mills had received, the awards and nominations that it had received. I did have reservations about using a mystery element, but I, I had to put that away. And I said, you know what, I have to enjoy writing this book. And I believe that if I enjoy writing it, I, it'll be enjoyable for readers. And I, you know, I totally expect for some, for some readers or some members of the Academy to say that it is not literary, but I believe that it is a literary book and it has a murder mystery in it. <laughs> Author Deshaun Charles Winslow. More information about his new mystery novel, Decent People, is on our website wabe.org slash citylights. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Art, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. My name is Amber Nicole, and I am a visual mixed media artist here in Atlanta. My art style is all about positively representing Black women and Black hair. I'm all about creating classic black portraits of women. I like to use vinyl records, flowers, and even CDs to really show the power behind how our hair can be. It makes a statement just like music, but it also has a delicate and graceful nature to it, just like flowers. So I really like using bright colors in my art that complement the vinyl records and the flowers that I use as hair. And as a black woman, I love focusing on women's afros, twists, locks, long hair, short hair, really any style that's popular in my community. I also enjoy painting on large canvases. That way I can get creative with how I place my records and flowers. It's pretty common for me to create a huge afro. And with the huge afro, I like to have my records going outside of the boundaries of my canvas. That way, I can play on the volume and texture of black hair. In 2017, I created my very first canvas as a birthday gift for my friend. I created the gift as a cool way to bring art into his recording studio. And after a few people saw the canvas, I got hit with so many people asking if I could make them a piece too. I thought, why not? During the pandemic, I spent the majority of the time at home creating new art as a way to disconnect from the craziness of the world and really find peace. I kept getting so much love and encouragement from others once I started sharing my work that I decided to follow my passion for art and officially become a full-time artist. 
Now I'm making large-scale vinyl record canvases and loving every single minute of it. I'm heavily inspired by music, fashion, really anything in the creative industry. Um, Although my art focuses mainly on hair, I like to really think outside the box with new concepts and designs that aren't necessarily thought of with hair. So for example, I saw a fashion show that used a lot of neon colors on their garments. So I decided, what could that look like on a canvas? And from there, I have now UV neon inspired pieces. So really anything around me, I can use for inspiration. So Atlanta has always been home for me. I grew up in College Park, Georgia, right outside of the airport and spent pretty much my young young adult life here in the city. I went to college downtown at Georgia State University and really got a feel for what the city is about. So all of that kind of plays into my art in one way or another, especially when it comes to the music. You can check out my work on Instagram by searching for am.nic and you'll see me, Amber Nicole. You can also go to my main website to look at my prints and past originals. That's going to be at ambernicole.studio. Mixed media artist Amber Nicole and our series Speaking of Art. Nicole's work is on view at the Distillery of Modern Art Gallery in Chambly through March 5th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the Emmy Award-winning writer and director Stephen Ives discusses his new film, Ruthless, Monopoly Secret History, part of the PBS series American Experience. City Light senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, And our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.